Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, and tales to terrify, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. And a very good morning to you, or a good afternoon, or even a good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you are listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. And welcome to show number 100. That's right, we're officially in the triple digits now. The big 100. Einhundert. We've made it this far with our sanity relatively intact. If you've been with us the entire time, dear listener, then we appreciate your support of Far-Fetched Fables and the District of Wonders. If you're a newcomer, then do yourself a favour and give a listen to our previous episodes. There are plenty of gems in our archives for all of you to enjoy. I'm Nicholas seaton Clark, and we've decided to celebrate this milestone with the thrilling tale of an iconic character from the hand of a grand master of speculative fiction. To be more specific, we bring you While the Gods Laugh by Michael Moorcock, featuring his singular anti-hero Elric of Melniboné. Michael Moorcock's bibliography includes more than 50 novels and countless short stories, and his creations include Jerry Cornelius, Dorian Hawkmoon, and perhaps his best-known character, Elric. Michael was editor of the controversial British science fiction magazine New Worlds from 1964 to 1971, and again from 1976 to 1996, where he was instrumental in the science fiction New Wave. In 2008, The Times named Moorcock as one of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. A feature-length documentary film exploring his six-decade career, Michael Moorcock, Faith, Hope and Anxiety, is scheduled for release later this year. Born in London, he currently divides his time between Texas and Paris. We're very honoured to be featuring a story by this amazing writer. And the story is read for you by... Myself. For those of you who don't know very much about me, I live in a little town in almost Eastern Europe with my husband and amazing children and very patient cat. Before we get started, a note on chronology, which is often everything but linear in Mr. Moorcock's multiverse. This particular story takes place a year after the destruction of Imrir, during the events of The Dreaming City, and Elric is now making his living as a notorious mercenary. 
Join us now for While the Gods Laugh by Michael Moorcock. I, while the gods laugh, the world's vortex am. Maelstrom of passions in that hidden sea, whose waves of all time lap the coasts of me, and in small compass the dark waters cram. Mervyn Peak, Shapes and Sounds, 1941 Chapter One One night, as Elric sat moodily drinking alone in a tavern, a wingless woman of Myrin came gliding out of the storm and rested her lithe body against him. Her face was thin and frail-boned, almost as white as Elric's own albino skin, and she wore flimsy pale green robes which contrasted well with her dark red hair. The tavern was ablaze with candle flame and alive with droning argument and gusty laughter, but the words of the woman of Murhin came clear and liquid, carrying over the zesty din. "'I have sought you twenty days,' she said to Elric, who regarded her insolently through hooded crimson eyes, and lazed in a high-backed chair, a silver wine-cup in his long-fingered right hand, and his left on the pommel of his sorcerous rune-sword, Stormbringer. Twenty days,' murmured the Melnibornean softly, speaking as if to himself, mockingly rude. "'A long time for a beautiful and lonely woman to be wandering the world.' He opened his eyes a trifle wider and spoke to her directly. "'I am Elric of Melnibornet, as you evidently know. I grant no favours and ask none. Bearing this in mind, tell me why you have sought me for twenty days.' Equably, the woman replied, undaunted by the albino's supercilious tone. "'You are a bitter man, Elric. I know this also, and you are grief-haunted for reasons which are already legend. I ask you no favours, but bring you myself and a proposition.' What do you desire most in the world? Peace, Elric told her simply. Then he smiled ironically and said, I am an evil man, lady, and my destiny is hell-doomed. But I am not unwise, nor unfair. Let me remind you a little of the truth. Call this legend if you prefer, I do not care. A woman died a year ago on the blade of my trusty sword. He patted the blade sharply, and his eyes were suddenly hard and self-mocking. Since then I have courted no woman and desired none. Why should I break such secure habits? If asked, I grant you that I could speak poetry to you, and that you have a grace and beauty which moves me to interesting speculation, but I would not load any part of my dark burden upon one as exquisite as you. Any relationship between us, other than formal, would necessitate my unwilling shifting of part of that burden. He paused for an instant and then said slowly, I should admit that I scream in my sleep sometimes, and am often tortured by incommunicable self-loathing. Go while you can, lady, and forget Elric, for he can bring only grief to your soul. With a quick movement he turned his gaze from her, and lifted the silver wine-cup, draining it and replenishing it from a jug at his side. No, said the wingless woman of Murhin calmly. I will not. Come with me. She rose and gently took Elric's hand. Without knowing why, Elric allowed himself to be led from the tavern and out into the wild, rainless storm which howled around the Filcarian city of Rashil. 
A protective and cynical smile hovered about his mouth as she drew him towards the sea-lashed quayside where she told him her name. Sharila of the Dancing Mist, wingless daughter of a dead necromancer, a cripple in her own strange land, and an outcast. Elric felt uncomfortably drawn to this calm-eyed woman who wasted few words. He felt a great surge of emotion well within him, emotion he had never thought to experience again, and he wanted to take her finely moulded shoulders and press her slim body to his. But he quelled the urge, and studied her marble delicacy and her wild hair which flowed in the wind about her head. Silence rested comfortably between them, while the chaotic wind howled mournfully over the sea. Here, Elric could ignore the warm stink of the city, and he felt almost relaxed. At last, looking away from him towards the swirling sea, her green robe curling in the wind, she said, You have heard, of course, of the dead god's book? Elric nodded. He was interested, despite the need he felt to disassociate himself as much as possible from his fellows. The mythical book was believed to contain knowledge which could solve many problems that had plagued men for centuries. It held a holy and mighty wisdom which every sorcerer desired to sample. But it was believed destroyed, hurled into the sun when the old gods were dying in the cosmic wastes which lay beyond the outer reaches of the solar system. Another legend, apparently of later origin, spoke vaguely of the Dark Ones, who had interrupted the book's sunward course and had stolen it before it could be destroyed. Most scholars discounted this legend, arguing that by this time the book would have come to light if it still did exist. Elric made himself speak flatly, so that he appeared to be uninterested when he answered Sharila. Why do you mention the book? I know that it exists, Sharila replied intensely, and I know where it is. My father acquired the knowledge just before he died. Myself and the book you may have if you will help me get it. Could the secret of peace be contained in the book, Elric wondered? Would he, if he found it, be able to dispense with Stormbringer? If you want it so badly that you seek my help, he said eventually, why do you not wish to keep it? Because I would be afraid to have such a thing perpetually in my custody. It is not a book for an ordinary mortal to own, but you are possibly the last mighty negromancer left in the world, and it is fitting that you should have it. Besides, you might kill me to obtain it. I would never be safe with such a volume in my hands. I need only one small part of its wisdom. What is that? Elric inquired, studying her patrician beauty with a new pulse stirring within him. Her mouth set, and the lids fell over her eyes. When we have the book in our hands, then you will have your answer. Not before. This answer is good enough. Elric remarked quickly, seeing that he would gain no more information at that stage. And the answer appeals to me. Then, half before he realised it, he seized her shoulders in his slim, pale hands and pressed his colourless lips to her scarlet mouth. Elric and Sharila rode westwards towards the silent land, across the lush plains of Shazar where their ship had berthed two days earlier. The border country between Shazar and the silent land was a lonely stretch of territory, unoccupied even by peasant dwellings, a no-man's land though fertile and rich in wealth. The inhabitants of Shazar had deliberately refrained from extending their borders further, for though the dwellers in the silent land rarely ventured beyond the marshes of the mist, the natural borderline between the two lands, 
the inhabitants of Shazar held their unknown neighbours in almost superstitious fear. The journey had been clean and swift, though ominous, with several persons who should have known nothing of their purpose warning the travellers of nearing danger. Elric brooded, recognising the signs of doom but choosing to ignore them and communicate nothing to Sharila, who, for her part, seemed content with Elric's silence. They spoke little in the day, and so saved their breath for the wild love-play of the night. The thud of the two horses' hoofs on the soft turf, the muted creak and clatter of Elric's harness and sword, were the only sounds to break the stillness of the clear winter day, as the pair rode steadily, nearing the quaking, treacherous trails of the marshes of the mist. One gloomy night they reached the borders of the silent land, marked by the marsh, and they halted and made camp, pitching their silk tent on a hill overlooking the mist-shrouded wastes. Banked like black pillows against the horizon, the clouds were ominous. The moon lurked behind them, sometimes piercing them sufficiently to send a pale, tentative beam down onto the glistening marsh or its ragged, grassy frontiers. Once, a moonbeam glanced off silver, illuminating the dark silhouette of Elric, but as if repelled by the sight of a living creature on that bleak hill, the moon once again slunk behind its cloud shield, leaving Elric thinking deeply, leaving Elric in the darkness he desired. Thunder rumbled over distant mountains, sounding like the laughter of far-off gods. Elric shivered, pulled his blue cloak more tightly about him, and continued to stare over the misted lowlands. Sharila came to him soon, and she stood beside him, swathed in a thick woolen coat which could not keep out all the damp chill in the air. The silent land, she murmured. Are all the stories true, Elric? Did they teach you of it in old Melnibornay? Elric frowned, annoyed that she had disturbed his thoughts. He turned abruptly to look at her, staring blankly out of crimson-irised eyes for a moment and then said flatly, The inhabitants are unhuman and feared, this I know. Few men ventured into their territory ever. None have returned, to my knowledge. Even in the days when Melniboné was a powerful empire, this was one nation my ancestors never ruled, nor did they desire to do so. Nor did they make a treaty. The denizens of the silent land are said to be a dying race, far more selfish than my ancestors ever were, who enjoyed dominion over the earth long before Melniboneans gained any sort of power. They rarely venture beyond the confines of their territory nowadays, encompassed as it is by marshland and mountains. Sharila laughed then with little humour. So they are unhuman, are they, Elric? Then what of my people who are related to them? What of me, Elric? You're unhuman enough for me, replied Elric, insouciantly looking at her in the eyes. She smiled. A compliment? I'll take it for one, until your glib tongue finds a better. That night they slept restlessly, and, as he had predicted, Elric screamed agonizingly in his turbulent, terror-filled sleep, and he called a name which made Sharila's eyes fill with pain and jealousy. Wide-eyed in his grim sleep, Elric seemed to be staring at the one he named, speaking other words in a sibilant language which made Sharila block her ears and shudder. The next morning, as they broke camp, folding the rustling fabric of the yellow silk tent between them, Sharila avoided looking at Elric directly. But later, since he made no move to speak, she asked him, in a voice which shook somewhat, a question. It was a question which she needed to ask, but one which came hard to her lips. 
Why do you desire the dead god's book, Elric? What do you believe you will find in it? Elric shrugged, dismissing the question, but she repeated her words less slowly, with more insistence. Very well, then, he said eventually. But it is not easy to answer you in a few sentences. I desire, if you like, to know one of two things. And what is that, Elric? The tall albino dropped the folded tent to the grass and sighed. His fingers played nervously with the pommel of his rune sword. Can an ultimate god exist or not? That is what I need to know, Sharila, if my life is to have any direction at all. The lords of law and chaos now govern our lives, but is there some being greater than them? Sharila put a hand on Elric's arm. Why must you know? she said. Despairingly, sometimes, I seek the comfort of a benign god, Sharila. My mind goes out, lying awake at night, searching through black barrenness for something, anything, which will take me to it. Warm me, protect me, tell me that there is order in the chaotic tumble of the universe, that it is consistent, this precision of the planets, not simply a brief, bright spark of sanity in an eternity of malevolent anarchy. <sighs> Elric sighed and his quiet tones were tinged with hopelessness. Without some confirmation of the order of things, my only comfort is to accept anarchy. This way I can revel in chaos and know, without fear that we are all doomed from the start, that our brief existence is both meaningless and damned. I can accept then that we are more than forsaken, because there was never anything there to forsake us. I have weighed the proof, Sharila, and must believe that anarchy prevails, in spite of all the laws which seemingly govern our actions, our sorcery, our logic. I see only chaos in the world. If the book we seek tells me otherwise, then I shall gladly believe it. Until then, I will put my trust only in my sword and myself. Sharila stared at Eric strangely. Could not this philosophy of yours have been influenced by recent events in your past? Do you fear the consequences of your murder and treachery? Is it not more comforting for you to believe in deserts that are rarely just? Elric turned on her, crimson eyes blazing in anger. But even as he made to speak, the anger fled him, and he dropped his eyes towards the ground, hooding them from her gaze. Perhaps, he said lamely. I do not know. That is the only real truth, Sharila. I do not know. Sharila nodded, her face lit by an enigmatic sympathy. But Elric did not see the look she gave him, for his own eyes were full of crystal tears which flowed down his lean white face and took his strength and will momentarily from him. I am a man possessed, he groaned, and without this devil blade I carry, I would not be a man at all. Chapter 2 they mounted their swift black horses and spurred them with abandoned savagery down the hillside towards the marsh, their cloaks whipping behind them as the wind caught them, lashing them high into the air. Both rode with set, hard faces, refusing to acknowledge the aching uncertainty which lurked within them. Chapter 2 And the horses' hooves had splashed into quaking bogland before they could halt. Cursing, Elric tugged hard on his reins, pulling his horse back onto firm ground. 
Sharila, too, fought her own panicky stallion and guided the beast to the safety of the turf. How do we cross? Elric asked her impatiently. There was a map, Sharila began hesitantly. Where is it? It... it was lost. I lost it. But I tried hard to memorize it. I think I'll be able to get us safely across. How did you lose it? And why didn't you tell me of this before? Elric stormed. I'm sorry, Elric, but for a whole day just before I found you in that tavern, my memory was gone. Somehow I lived through a day without knowing it, and when I awoke the map was missing. Elric frowned. There is some force working against us, I'm sure, he muttered, but what it is I do not know. He raised his voice and said to her, Let us hope that your memory is not too faulty now. These marshes are infamous the world over, but by all accounts, only natural hazards wait for us. He grimaced and put his fingers around the hilt of his rune-sword. Best go first, Sharila, but stay close. Lead the way. She nodded dumbly and turned her horse's head towards the north, galloping along the bank until she came to a place where a great tapering rock loomed. Here, a grassy path, four feet or so across, led out into the misty marsh. They could only see a little distance ahead because of the clinging mist, but it seemed that the trail remained firm for some way. Sharila walked her horse onto the path and jolted forward at a slow trot, Elric following immediately behind her. Through the swirling, heavy mist which shone whitely, the horses moved hesitantly and their riders had to keep them on short, tight rein. The mist padded the marsh with silence, and the gleaming, watery fens around them stank with foul putrescence. No animal scurried, no bird shrieked above them. Everywhere was a haunting, fear-laden silence which made both horses and riders uneasy. With panic in their throats, Elric and Sharila rode on, deeper and deeper into the unnatural marshes of the mist, their eyes wary and even their nostrils quivering for scent of danger in the stinking morass. Hours later, when the sun was long past its zenith, Sharila's horse reared, screaming and whinnying. She shouted for Elric, her exquisite features twisted in fear as she stared into the mist. He spurred his own bucking horse forwards and joined her. Something moved, slowly menacingly in the clinging whiteness. Elric's right hand whipped over to his left side and grasped the hilt of Stormbringer. The blade shrieked out of its scabbard, a black fire gleaming along its length and alien power flowing from it into Elric's arm and through his body. A weird, unholy light leapt into Elric's crimson eyes and his mouth was wrenched into a hideous grin as he forced the frightened horse further into the skulking mist. Arioch! Lord of the Seven Darks, be with me now! Elric yelled as he made out the shifting shape ahead of him. It was white, like the mist, yet somehow darker. It stretched high above Elric's head. It was nearly ten feet tall and almost as broad, but it was still only an outline, seeming to have no face or limbs, only movement, darting malevolent movement. But Arioch, his patron god, chose not to hear. Elric could feel his horse's great heart beating between his legs as the beast plunged forward under its rider's iron control. Sharila was screaming something behind him, but he could not hear the words. Elric hacked at the white shape, but his sword met only mist and it howled, angrily. The fear-crazed horse would go no further, and Elric was forced to dismount. "'Keep hold of the steed!' he shouted behind him to Sharila, 
and moved on light feet towards the darting shape which hovered ahead of him, blocking his path. Now he could make out some of its saliencies. Two eyes, the colour of thin yellow wine, were set high in the thing's body, though it had no separate head. A mouthing, obscene slit, filled with fangs, lay just beneath the eyes. It had no nose or ears that Elric could see. Four appendages sprang from its upper parts, and its lower body slithered along the ground, unsupported by any limbs. Elric's eyes ached as he looked at it. It was incredibly disgusting to behold, and its amorphous body gave off a stench of death and decay. Fighting down his fear, the albino inched forward warily, his sword held high to parry any thrust the thing might make with its arms. Elric recognised it from a description in one of his grimoires. It was a mist-giant, possibly the only mist-giant, Belbane. Even the wisest wizards were uncertain how many existed, one or many. It was a ghoul of the swamplands which fed off the souls and blood of men and beasts. But the marshes of this mist were far to the east of Belbane's reputed haunts. Elric ceased to wonder why so few animals inhabited that stretch of the swamps. Overhead, the sky was beginning to darken. Stormbringer throbbed in Elric's grasp as he called the names of the ancient demon gods of his people. The nauseous ghoul obviously recognised the names. For an instant, it wavered backwards. Elric made his legs move towards the thing. Now he saw that the ghoul was not white at all, but it had no colour to it that Elric could recognise. There was a suggestion of orangeness, dashed with sickening greenish-yellow, but he did not see the colours with his eyes, he only sense the alien, unholy tinctures. Then Elric rushed towards the thing, shouting the names which now had no meaning to his surface consciousness. Balan, Martim, Esma, Alastor, Sebos, Verdalet, Nizilfkim, Haborim, Haborim of the fires which destroy. His whole mind was torn in two. Part of him wanted to run, to hide, but he had no control over the power which now gripped him and pushed him to meet the horror. His sword-blade hacked and slashed at the shape. It was like trying to cut through water, sentient, pulsating water. But Stormbringer had effect. The whole shape of the ghoul quivered as if in dreadful pain. Elric felt himself plucked into the air and his vision went. He could see nothing, do nothing but hack and cut at the thing which now held him. Sweat poured from him as blindly he fought on. Pain, which was hardly physical, a deeper, horrifying pain, filled his being as he howled now in agony and struck continually at the yielding bulk which embraced him and was pulling him slowly towards its gaping maw. He struggled and writhed in the obscene grasp of the thing. With powerful arms it was holding him almost lasciviously, drawing him closer as a rough lover would draw a girl. Even the mighty power intrinsic in the rune-sword did not seem enough to kill the monster. Though its efforts were somewhat weaker than earlier, it still drew Elric nearer to the gnashing, slavering mouth-slit. Elric cried the names again, while Stormbringer danced and sang an evil song in his right hand. In agony, Elric writhed, praying, begging and promising, but still he was drawn, inch by inch, towards the grinning moor. Savagely, grimly he fought, and again he screamed for Arioch. A mind touched his, sardonic, powerful, evil, and he knew Arioch responded at last. 
Almost imperceptibly, the mist giant weakened. Elric pressed his advantage, and the knowledge that the ghoul was losing its strength gave him more power. Blindly, agony piercing every nerve of his body, he struck and struck. And then, quite suddenly, he was falling. He seemed to fall for hours, slowly, weightlessly, until he landed upon a surface which yielded beneath him. He began to sink. Far off, beyond time and space, he heard a distant voice calling to him. He did not want to hear it. He was content to lie where he was as the cold, comforting stuff in which he lay dragged him slowly into itself. Then, some sixth sense made him realise it was Sharila's voice calling him, and he forced himself to make sense out of her words. Elric, the marsh! You're in the marsh! Don't move! He smiled to himself. Why should he move? Down he was sinking, slowly, calmly, down into the welcoming marsh. Had there been another time like this? Another marsh? With a mental jolt, full awareness of the situation came back to him, and he jerked his eyes open. Above him was mist. To one side, a pool of unnameable colouring was slowly evaporating, giving off a foul odour. On the other side, he could just make out a human form, gesticulating wildly. Beyond the human form were the barely discernible shapes of two horses. Sharila was there. Beneath him... Beneath him was the marsh. Thick, stinking slime was sucking him downwards as he lay spread-eagled upon it, half-submerged already. Stormbringer was still in his right hand. He could just see it if he turned his head. Carefully, he tried to lift the top half of his body from the sucking morass. He succeeded, only to feel his legs sink deeper. Sitting upright, he shouted to the girl, Sharila, quickly, a rope! There is no rope, Elric. She was ripping off her top garment, frantically tearing it into strips. Still Elric sank, his feet finding no purchase beneath them. Sharila hastily knotted the strips of cloth. She flung the makeshift rope inexpertly towards the sinking albino. It fell short. Fumbling in her haste, she threw it again. This time his groping left hand found it. The girl began to haul on the fabric. Elric felt himself rise a little, and then stop. It's no good, Elric. I haven't the strength. Cursing her, Elric shouted, The horse! Tie it to the horse! She ran towards one of the horses and looped the cloth around the pommel of the saddle. Then she tugged at the beast's reins and began to walk it away. Swiftly, Elric was dragged from the sucking bog, and, still gripping Stormbringer, was pulled to the inadequate safety of the strip of turf. Gasping, he tried to stand, but found his legs incredibly weak beneath him. He rose, staggered and fell. Sharila knelt down beside him. Are you hurt? Elric smiled in spite of his weakness. I don't think so. It was dreadful. I couldn't see properly what was happening. You seemed to disappear and then... Then you screamed that... That name... She was trembling, her face pale and taut. What name? Elric was genuinely puzzled. What name did I scream? She shook her head. It doesn't matter, but whatever it was, it saved you. You reappeared soon afterwards and fell into the marsh. Stormbringer's power was still flowing into the albino. He already felt stronger. With an effort, he got up and stumbled unsteadily towards his horse. 
I'm sure that the mist giant does not usually haunt this marsh. It was sent here. By what or whom, I don't know, but we must get a firmer ground while we can. Sharila said, Which way? Back or forward? Elric frowned. Why, forward, of course. Why do you ask? She swallowed and shook her head. Let's hurry, then, she said. They mounted their horses and rode with little caution, until the marsh in its cloak of mist was behind them. Now the journey took on a new urgency, as Elric realised that some force was attempting to put obstacles in their way. They rested little and savagely rode their powerful horses to a virtual standstill. On the fifth day they were riding through barren, rocky country and a light rain was falling. The hard ground was slippery, so that they were forced to ride more slowly, huddled over the sodden necks of their horses, muffled in cloaks which only inadequately kept out the drizzling rain. They'd ridden in silence for some time before they heard a ghastly cackling baying ahead of them and the rattle of hooves. Elric motioned towards a large rock looming to their right. Shelter there, he said. Something comes towards us, possibly more enemies. With luck, they'll pass. Sharila mutely obeyed him, and together they waited as the hideous baying grew nearer. One rider, several other beasts, Elric said, listening intently. The beasts either follow or pursue the rider. Then they were in sight, racing through the rain, a man frantically spurring an equally frightened horse, and behind him, the distance decreasing, a pack of what at first appeared to be dogs. But these were not dogs. They were half dog and half bird, with the lean, shaggy bodies and legs of dogs, but possessing bird-like talons in place of paws and savagely curved beaks which snapped where muzzles should have been. The hunting dogs of the Darcy, gasped Sharila. I thought that they, like their masters, were long extinct. I also, Elric said. What are they doing in these parts? There was never contact between the Darcy and the dwellers of this land. Brought here by something, Sharila whispered. Those devil dogs will scent us, to be sure. Elric reached for his rune sword. Then we can lose nothing by aiding their quarry, he said, urging his mount forward. Wait here, Sharila. By this time, the devil pack and the man they pursued were rushing past the sheltering rock, speeding down a narrow defile. Elric spurred his horse down the slope. Ho oh, there, he shouted to the frantic rider. Turn and stand, my friend, I'm here to aid you. His moaning runesword lifted high. Elric thundered towards the snapping, howling devil dogs, and his horse's hooves struck one with an impact which broke the unnatural beast's spine. There were some five or six of the weird dogs left. The rider turned his horse and drew a long sabre from a scabbard at his waist. He was a small man with a broad, ugly mouth. He grinned in relief. A lucky chance, this meeting, good master. This was all he had time to remark before two of the dogs were leaping at him, and he was forced to give his whole attention to defending himself from their slashing talons and snapping beaks. The other three dogs concentrated their vicious attention upon Elric. One leapt high, its beak aimed at Elric's throat. He felt foul breath on his face and hastily brought Stormbring around in an arc which chopped the dog in two. Filthy blood spattered Elric and his horse, and the scent of it seemed to increase the fury of the other dog's attack. But the blood made the dancing black runesword sing an almost ecstatic tune, and Elric felt it writhe in his grasp and stab at another of the hideous dogs. The point caught the beast just below its breastbone as it reared up at the albino. It screamed in terrible agony and turned its beak to seize the blade. 
As the beak connected with the lambent black metal of the sword, a foul stench, akin to the smell of burning, struck Elric's nostrils, and the beast's scream broke off sharply. Engaged with the remaining devil dog, Elric caught a fleeting glimpse of the charred corpse. His horse was rearing high, lashing at the last alien animal with flailing hooves. The dog avoided the horse's attack and came at Elric's unguarded left side. The albino swung in the saddle and brought his sword hurtling down to slice into the dog's skull and spill brains and blood on the wet and gleaming ground. Still somehow alive, the dog snapped feebly at Elric, but the Melnibonean ignored its futile attack and turned his attention to the little man who had dispensed with one of his adversaries but was having difficulty with the second. The dog had grasped the sabre with its beak, gripping the sword near the hilt. Talons raked towards the little man's throat as he strove to shake the dog's grip. Elric charged forward, his rune-sword aimed like a lance to where the devil-dog dangled in mid-air, its talons slashing, trying to reach the flesh of its former quarry. Stormbringer caught the beast in its lower abdomen and ripped upwards, slitting the thing's underparts from crotch to throat. It released its hold on the small man's sabre and fell writhing to the ground. Elric's horse trampled it into the rocky ground. Breathing heavily, the albino sheathed Stormbringer and warily regarded the man he had saved. He disliked unnecessary contact with anyone and did not wish to be embarrassed by a display of emotion on the little man's part. He was not disappointed, for the wide, ugly mouth split into a cheerful grin and the man bowed in the saddle as he returned his own curved blade to its scabbard. "'Thanks, good sir,' he said lightly. "'Without your help the battle might have lasted longer.' You deprived me of good sport, but you meant well. Moonglum is my name. Elric of Melnibonet, I, replied the albino, but saw no reaction on the little man's face. This was strange, for the name of Elric was now infamous throughout most of the world. The story of his treachery and the slaying of his cousin Simoril had been told and elaborated upon in taverns throughout the young kingdoms. Much as he hated it, he was used to receiving some indication of recognition from those he met. His albinism was enough to mark him. Intrigued by Moonglum's ignorance and feeling strangely drawn towards the cocky little rider, Elric studied him in an effort to discover from what land he came. Moonglum wore no armour, and his clothes were of faded blue material, travel-stained and worn. A stout leather belt carried the sabre, a dirk, and a woollen purse. Upon his feet, Moonglum wore ankle-length boots of cracked leather. His horse furniture was much used but of obviously good quality— the man himself, seated high in the saddle, was barely more than five feet tall, with legs too long in proportion to the rest of his slight body. His nose was short and up-tilted, beneath grey-green eyes, large and innocent-seeming. A mop of vivid red hair fell over his forehead and down his neck unrestrained. He sat his horse comfortably, still grinning but looking now behind Elric to where Sharila rode to join them. Moonglum bowed elaborately as the girl pulled her horse to a halt. Elric said coldly, "'The Lady Sharila, Master Moonglum of—' "'Of Elwer,' Moonglum supplied, "'the mercantile capital of the East, the finest city in the world.' Elric recognised the name. "'So you are from Elwer, Master Moonglum. I've heard of the place. A new city, is it not? Some few centuries old, you've ridden far.' "'Indeed I have, sir. Without knowledge of the language used in these parts, the journey would have been harder—' But luckily the slave who inspired me with tales of his homeland taught me the speech thoroughly. But why do you travel these parts? Have you not heard the legends? 
Sharila spoke incredulously. Those very legends were what brought me hence, and I'd begun to discount them until those unpleasant pups set upon me. For what reason they decided to give chase I will not know, for I gave them no cause to take a dislike to me. This is indeed a barbarous land. Elric was uncomfortable. Light talk of the kind which Moonglum seemed to enjoy was contrary to his own brooding nature. But in spite of this, he found that he was liking the man more and more. It was Moonglum who suggested that they travel together for a while. Sharila objected, giving Elric a warning glance, but he ignored it. Very well then, friend Moonglum, since three are stronger than two, we'd appreciate your company. We ride towards the mountains. Elric himself was feeling in a more cheerful mood. And what do you seek there? Moonglum inquired. A secret, Elric said, and his newfound companion was discreet enough to drop the question. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Chapter 3 So they rode, while the rainfall increased and splashed and sang among the rocks, with the sky like dull steel above them, and the wind crooning a dirge about their ears. Three small figures riding swiftly towards the black mountain barrier, which rose over the world like a brooding god. And perhaps it was a god that laughed sometimes as they neared the foothills of the range, or perhaps it was the wind whistling through the dark mystery of canyons and precipices, and the tumble of basalt and granite which climbed towards lonely peaks. Thunderclouds formed around those peaks, and lightning smashed downwards like a monster finger searching the earth for grubs. Thunder rattled over the range, and Sharila spoke her thoughts at last to Elric, spoke them as the mountains came in sight. Elric! 
Let us go back, I beg you. Forget the book. There are too many forces working against us. Take heed of the signs, Elric, or we are doomed. But Elric was grimly silent, for he had long been aware that the girl was losing her enthusiasm for the quest she had started. Elric, please. We will never reach the book. Elric, turn back. She rode beside him, pulling at his garments until impatiently he shrugged himself clear of her grasp and said, I am intrigued too much to stop now. Either continue to lead the way, or tell me what you know and stay here. You desired to sample the book's wisdom once, but now a few minor pitfalls on our journey have frightened you. What was it you needed to learn, Sharila? She did not answer him, but said instead, And what was it you desired, Elric? Peace, you told me. Well, I warn you, you'll find no peace in those grim mountains, if we reach them at all. You have not been frank with me, Sharila, Elric said coldly, still looking ahead of him at the Black Peaks. You know something of the forces seeking to stop us. She shrugged. It matters not. I know little. My father spoke a few vague warnings before he died, that is all. What did he say? He said that he who guards the book would use all his power to stop mankind from using its wisdom. What else? Nothing else. But it is enough, now that I see that my father's warning was truly spoken. It was this guardian who killed him, Elric, or one of the guardian's minions. I do not wish to suffer that fate, in spite of what the book might do for me. I had thought you powerful enough to aid me, but now I doubt it. I have protected you so far, Elric said simply. Now tell me what you seek from the book. I am too ashamed. Elric did not press the question, but eventually she spoke softly, almost whispering. I sought my wings, she said. Your wings? You mean the book might give you a spell so that you could grow wings? Elric smiled ironically. And that is why you seek the vessel of the world's mightiest wisdom. If you were thought deformed in your own land, it would seem important enough to you, she shouted defiantly. Elric turned his face towards her, his crimson irised eyes burning with a strange emotion. He put a hand to his dead white skin, and a crooked smile twisted his lips. I too have felt as you do, he said quietly. That was all he said, and Sharila dropped behind him again, shamed. They rode on in silence until Moonglum, who had been riding discreetly ahead, cocked his overlarge skull to one side and suddenly drew rein. Elric joined him. What is it, Moonglum? I hear horses coming this way, the little man said, and voices which are disturbingly familiar, more of those devil dogs, Elric, and this time accompanied by riders. Elric, too, heard the sounds now, and shouted a warning to Sharila. Perhaps you are right, he called. More trouble comes towards us. What now? Moonglum said, frowning. Ride for the mountains, Elric replied, and we may yet outdistance them. They spurred their steeds into a fast gallop and sped towards the hills, but their flight was hopeless. Soon a black pack was visible on the horizon, and the sharp, bird-like baying of the devil-dogs drew nearer. Elric stared backwards at their pursuers. 
Night was beginning to fall, and visibility was decreasing with every passing moment, but he had a vague impression of the riders who raced behind the pack. They were swathed in dark cloaks and carried long spears. Their faces were invisible, lost in the shadow of the hoods which covered their heads. Now Elric and his companions were forcing their horses up a steep incline, seeking the shelter of the rocks which lay above. "'We'll halt here,' Elric ordered, "'and try to hold them off. In the open they could easily surround us.' Moonglum nodded affirmatively, agreeing with the good sense contained in Elric's words. They pulled their sweating steeds to a standstill, and prepared to join battle with the howling pack and their dark-cloaked masters. Soon, the first of the devil-dogs were rushing up the incline, their beak-jaws slavering and their talons rattling on stone. Standing between two rocks, blocking the way between with their bodies, Elric and Moonglum met the first attack and quickly dispatched three of the animals. Several more took the place of the dead, and the first of the riders was visible behind them as night crept closer. Arioch, swore Elric, suddenly recognising the riders. These are the lords of Darzi. Dead these ten centuries, we're fighting dead men, Moonglum, and the two tangible ghosts of their dogs. Unless I can think of a sorcerous means to defeat them, we are doomed. The zombie men appeared to have no intention of taking part in the attack for the moment. They waited, their dead eyes eerily luminous as the devil-dogs attempted to break through the swinging network of steel with which Elric and his companion defended themselves. Elric was racking his brains, trying to dredge a spoken spell from his memory which would dismiss these living dead. Then it came to him, and hoping that the forces he had to invoke would decide to aid him, he began to chant. Let the laws which govern all things not so lightly be dismissed. Let the ones who flaunt the earth kings with a fresher death be kissed. Nothing happened. I failed, Elric muttered hopelessly as he met the attack of a snapping devil-dog and spitted the thing on his sword. But then the ground rocked and seemed to seethe beneath the feet of the horses upon whose backs the dead men sat. The tremor lasted a few seconds and then subsided. The spell was not powerful enough, Elric sighed. The earth trembled again, and small craters formed in the ground of the hillside upon which the dead lords of Darzi impassively waited. Stones crumbled, and the horses stamped nervously. Then the earth rumbled. Back, yelled Elric warningly. Back, or we'll go with them. They retreated, backing toward Sharila and their waiting horses as the ground sagged beneath their feet. The Daji mounts were rearing and snorting, and the remaining dogs turned nervously to regard their masters with puzzled, uncertain eyes. A low moan was coming from the lips of the living dead. Suddenly, a whole area of the surrounding hillside split into cracks, and yawning crannies appeared in the surface. Elric and his companions swung themselves onto their horses as, with a frightful multi-voiced scream, the dead lords were swallowed by the earth, returning to the depths from which they had been summoned. A deep, unholy chuckle arose from the shattered pit. It was the mocking laughter of the earth elemental King Gromme, taking his rightful subjects back into his keeping. Whining, the devil-dogs slunk towards the edge of the pit, sniffing around it, then, with one accord, the black pack hurled itself down into the chasm, following its masters to whatever unholy doom awaited it. Moonglum shuddered. "'You are on familiar terms with the strangest people, friend Elric,' he said shakily, and turned his horse towards the mountains again. 
They reached the Black Mountains on the following day, and nervously Sharila led them along the rocky route she had memorized. She no longer pleaded with Elric to return. She was resigned to whatever fate awaited them. Elric's obsession was burning within him, and he was filled with impatience, certain that he would find, at last, the ultimate truth of existence in the dead god's book. Moonglum was cheerfully sceptical, while Sharila was consumed with foreboding. Rain still fell, and the storm growled and crackled above them. But, as the driving rainfall increased with fresh insistence, they came at last to the black, gaping mouth of a huge cave. "'I can lead you no further,' Sharila said wearily. "'The book lies somewhere beyond the entrance to this cave.' Elric and Moonglum looked uncertainly at one another, neither of them sure what move to make next. To have reached their goal seemed somehow anticlimactic, for nothing blocked the cave entrance, and nothing appeared to guard it. "'It is inconceivable,' said Elric, "'that the dangers which beset us were not engineered by something, yet here we are, and no one seeks to stop us entering. Are you sure that this is the right cave, Sharela?' The girl pointed upwards to the rock above the entrance. Engraved in it was a curious symbol which Elric instantly recognised. "'The sign of chaos!' Elric exclaimed. "'Perhaps I should have guessed.' "'What does it mean, Elric?' Moonglum asked. "'That is the symbol of everlasting disruption and anarchy,' Elric told him. "'We are standing in territory presided over by the Lords of Entropy or one of their minions. "'So that is who our enemy is. "'This can only mean one thing.' The book is of extreme importance to the order of things on this plane, possibly all the myriad planes of the multiverse. It was why Arioch was reluctant to aid me. He too is the Lord of Chaos. Moonglum stared at him in puzzlement. What do you mean, Elric? Know you not that two forces govern the world, fighting an eternal battle? Elric replied. Law and Chaos. The upholders of chaos state that in such a world as they rule, all things are possible. Opponents of chaos, those who ally themselves with the forces of law, say that without law, nothing material is possible. Some stand apart, believing that a balance between the two is the proper state of things, but we cannot. We have become embroiled in a dispute between the two forces. The book is valuable to either faction, obviously, and I could guess that the minions of entropy are worried what power we might release if we obtain this book. Law and chaos rarely interfere directly in men's lives. That is why only adepts are fully aware of their presence. Now, perhaps, I will discover at last the answer to the one question which concerns me. Does an ultimate force rule over the opposing factions of law and chaos? Elric stepped through the cave entrance, peering into the gloom while the others hesitantly followed him. The cave stretches back a long way, all we can do is press on until we find its far wall, Elric said. Let's hope that its far wall lies not downwards, Moonglum said ironically as he motioned Elric to lead on. They stumbled forward as the cave grew darker and darker. Their voices were magnified and hollow to their ears as the floor of the cave slanted sharply down. This is no cave, Elric whispered. It's a tunnel, but I cannot guess where it leads. For several hours they pressed onwards in pitch darkness, clinging to one another as they reeled forward, uncertain of their footing and still aware that they were moving down a gradual incline. They lost all sense of time, 
and Elric began to feel as if he were living through a dream. Events seemed to have become so unpredictable and beyond his control that he could no longer cope with thinking about them in ordinary terms. The tunnel was long and dark and wide and cold. It offered no comfort, and the floor eventually became the only thing which had any reality. It was firmly beneath his feet. He began to feel that possibly he was not moving, that the floor, after all, was moving and he was remaining stationary. His companions clung to him, but he was not aware of them. He was lost and his brain was numb. Sometimes he swayed and felt that he was on the edge of a precipice. Sometimes he fell and his groaning body met hard stone, disproving the proximity of the gulf down which he half expected to fall. All the while he made his legs perform walking motions, even though he was not at all sure whether he was actually moving forward. And time meant nothing, became a meaningless concept with relation to nothing. Until, at last, he was aware of a faint blue glow ahead of him, and he knew that he had been moving forward. He began to run down the incline, but found that he was going too fast and had to check his speed. There was a scent of alien strangeness in the cool air of the cave tunnel, and fear was a fluid force which surged over him, something separate from himself. The others obviously felt it too, for, though they said nothing, Elric could sense it. Slowly they moved downward, drawn like automatons towards the pale blue glow below them. And then they were out of the tunnel, staring awestruck at the unearthly vision which confronted them. Above them, the very air seemed of the strange blue colour which had originally attracted them. They were standing on a jutting slab of rock, and, although it was still somehow dark, the eerie blue glow illuminated a stretch of glinting silver beach beneath them. And the beach was lapped by a surging dark sea, which moved restlessly like a liquid giant in disturbed slumber. Scattered along the silver beach were the dim shapes of wrecks, the bones of peculiarly designed boats, each of a different pattern from the rest. The sea surged away into darkness, and there was no horizon, only blackness. Behind them they could see a sheer cliff which was also lost in darkness beyond a certain point, and it was cold, bitterly cold, with an unbelievable sharpness, for though the sea threshed beneath them there was no dampness in the air, no smell of salt. It was a bleak and awesome sight, and, apart from the sea, they were the only things that moved, the only things to make sound, for the sea was horribly silent in its restless movement. "'What now, Elric?' whispered Moonglum, shivering. Elric shook his head, and they continued to stand there for a long time, until the albino, his white face and hands ghastly in the alien light, said, since it is impracticable to return, we shall venture over the sea. His voice was hollow, and he spoke as one who was unaware of his words. Steps, cut into the living rock, led down towards the beach, and now Elric began to descend them. Staring around them, their eyes lit by a terrible fascination. The others allowed him to lead them. Chapter 4 their feet profaned the silence as they reached the silver beach of crystalline stones and crunched across it. Elric's crimson eyes fixed upon one of the objects littering the beach, and he smiled. He shook his head savagely from side to side as if to clear it. Trembling, he pointed to one of the boats, 
and the pair saw that it was intact, unlike the others. It was yellow and red, vulgarly gay in this environment, and nearing it, they observed that it was made of wood, yet unlike any wood they had seen. Moonglum ran his stubby fingers along the length. Hard as iron, he breathed. No wonder it has not rotted as the others have. He peered inside and shuddered. Well, the owner won't argue if we take it, he said wryly. Elric and Sharila understood him when they saw the unnaturally twisted skeleton which lay at the bottom of the boat. Elric reached inside and pulled the thing out, hurling it on the stones. It rattled and rolled over the gleaming shingle, disintegrating as it did so, scattering bones over a wide area. The skull came to rest by the edge of the beach, seeming to stare sightlessly out over the disturbing ocean. As Elric and Moonglum strove to push and pull the boat down the beach towards the sea, Sharila moved ahead of them and squatted down, putting her hand into the wetness. She stood up sharply, shaking the stuff from her hand. This is not water as I know it, she said. They heard her, but said nothing. We'll need a sail, Elric murmured. The cold breeze was moving out over the ocean. A cloak should serve. He stripped off his cloak and knotted it to the mast of the vessel. Two of us will have to hold this at either edge, he said. That way we'll have some slight control over the direction the boat takes. It's makeshift, but the best we can manage. They shoved off, taking care not to get their feet in the sea. The wind caught the sail and pushed the boat out over the ocean, moving at a faster pace than Elric had at first reckoned. The boat began to hurtle forward, as if possessed of its own volition, and Elric's and Moonglum's muscles ached as they clung to the bottom ends of the sail. Soon the silver beach was out of sight, and they could see little, the pale blue light above them scarcely penetrating the blackness. It was then that they heard the dry flap of wings over their heads and looked up. Silently descending were three massive ape-like creatures, borne on great leathery wings, Sharila recognised them and gasped. Clacars! <gasps> Moonglum shrugged as he hurriedly drew his sword. A name only. What are they? But he received no answer, for the leading winged ape descended with a rush, mouthing and gibbering, showing long fangs and a slavering snout. Moonglum dropped his portion of the sail and slashed at the beast, but it veered away, its huge wings beating, and sailed upwards again. Elric unsheathed Stormbringer, and was astounded. The blade remained silent, its familiar howl of glee muted. The blade shuddered in his hand, and instead of the rush of power which usually flowed up his arm, he felt only a slight tingling. He was panic-stricken for a moment. Without the sword he would soon lose all vitality. Grimly fighting down his fear, he used the sword to protect himself from the rushing attack of one of the winged apes. The ape gripped the blade, bowling Elric over, but it yelled in pain as the blade cut through one knotted hand, severing fingers which lay twitching and bloody on the narrow deck. Elric held tight to the side of the boat and hauled himself upright once more. Shrilling its agony, the winged ape attacked again, but this time with more caution. Elric summoned all his strength and swung the heavy sword in a two-handed grip, ripping off one of the leathery wings so that the mutilated beast flopped about the deck. Judging the place where its heart should be, Elric drove the blade in under the breastbone. The ape's movements subsided. Moonglum was lashing wildly at two of the winged apes which were attacking him from both sides. 
He was down on one knee, vainly hacking at random. He had opened up the whole side of a beast's head, but though in pain, it still came at him. Elric hurled Stormbringer through the darkness, and it struck the wounded beast in the throat, point first. The ape clutched with clawing fingers at the steel and fell overboard. Its corpse floated on the liquid but slowly began to sink. Elric grabbed with frantic fingers at the hilt of his sword, reaching far over the side of the boat. Incredibly, the blade was sinking with the beast. Knowing Stormbringer's properties as he did, Elric was amazed. Now it was being dragged beneath the surface as any ordinary blade would be dragged. He gripped the hilt and hauled the sword out of the winged ape's carcass. His strength was seeping swiftly from him. It was incredible. What alien laws governed this cavern world? He could not guess, and all he was concerned with was regaining his waning strength. Without the rune sword's power, that was impossible. Moonglum's curved blade had disemboweled the remaining beast, and the little man was busily tossing the dead thing over the side. He turned, grinning triumphantly to Elric. A good fight, he said. Elric shook his head. We must cross this sea speedily, he replied, else we're lost, finished. My power is gone. How? Why? I know not. Unless the forces of entropy rule more strongly here. Make haste, there is no time for speculation. Moonglum's eyes were disturbed. He could do nothing but act as Elric said. Elric was trembling in his weakness, holding the billowing sail with draining strength. Sharila moved to help him, her thin hands close to his, her deep-set eyes bright with sympathy. What were those things? Moonglum gasped, his teeth naked and white beneath his back-drawn lips, his breath coming short. Clacars, Sharila replied. They are the primeval ancestors of my people, older in origin than recorded time. My people are thought the oldest inhabitants of this planet. Whoever seeks to stop us in this quest of yours had best find some original means, Moonglum grinned. The old methods don't work. But the other two did not smile, for Elric was half-fainting, and the woman was concerned only with his plight. Moonglum shrugged, staring ahead. When he spoke again some time later, his voice was excited. We're nearing land. Land it was, and they were travelling fast towards it. Too fast. Elric heaved himself upright and spoke heavily and with difficulty. Drop the sail. Moonglum obeyed him. The boat sped on, struck another stretch of silver beach and ground up it, the prow ploughing a dark scar through the glinting shingle. It stopped suddenly, tilting violently to one side, so that the three were tumbled against the boat's rail. Sharila and Moonglum pulled themselves upright and dragged the limp and nerveless albino onto the beach. Carrying him between them, they struggled up the beach until the crystalline shingle gave way to thick, fluffy moss padding their footfalls. They laid the albino down and stared at him worriedly, uncertain of their next actions. Elric strained to rise, but was unable to do so. Give me time, he gasped. I won't die, but already my eyesight is fading. I can only hope that the blade's power will return on dry land. With a mighty effort, he pulled Stormbringer from its scabbard, and he smiled in relief as the evil runesword moaned faintly, and then, slowly, its song increased in power as black flame flickered along its length. Already the power was flowing into Elric's body, giving him renewed vitality. 
But even as strength returned, Elric's crimson eyes flared with terrible misery. Without this black blade, he groaned, I am nothing, as you see. But what is it making of me? Am I to be bound to it for ever? The others did not answer him, and they were both moved by an emotion they could not define, an emotion blended of fear, hate, and pity, linked with something else. Eventually, Elric rose, trembling, and silently led them up the mossy hillside towards a more natural light, which filtered from above. They could see that it came from a wide chimney, leading apparently to the upper air. By means of the light, they could soon make out a dark, irregular shape which towered in the shadow of the gap. As they neared the shape, they saw that it was a castle of black stone, a sprawling pile covered with dark green crawling lichen, which curled over its ancient bulk with an almost sentient protectiveness. Towers appeared to spring at random from it, and it covered a vast area. There seemed to be no windows in any part of it, and the only orifice was a rearing doorway blocked by thick bars of a metal which glowed with dull redness, but without heat. Above this gate, in flaring amber, was the sign of the Lords of Entropy, representing eight arrows radiating from a central hub in all directions. It appeared to hang in the air without touching the black, lichen-covered stone. I think our quest ends here, Elric said grimly. Here or nowhere. Before I go any further, Elric, I'd like to know what it is you seek, Moonglum murmured. I think I've earned the right. A book, Elric said carelessly. The dead god's book. It lies within those castle walls, of that I'm certain. We've reached the end of our journey. Moonglum shrugged. I might not have asked he smiled, for all your words mean to me. I hope that I will be allowed some small share of whatever treasure it represents. Elric grinned, in spite of the coldness which gripped his bowels, but he did not answer Moonglum. We need to enter the castle first, he said instead. As if the gates had heard him, the metal bars flared to a pale green, and then their glow faded back to red and finally dulled into non-existence. The entrance was unbarred, and their way apparently clear. I like not that, growled Moonglum. Too easy. A trap awaits us. Are we to spring it at the pleasure of whoever dwells within the castle confines? What else can we do? Elric spoke quietly. Go back. Or forward. Avoid the castle. Do not tempt he who guards the book. Sharila was gripping the albino's right arm, her whole face moving with fear, her eyes pleading. Forget the book, Elric. Now? Elric laughed humorously. <laughs> now? After this journey? No, Sharila, not when the truth is so close. Better to die than never to have tried to secure the wisdom in the book when it lies so near. Sharila's clutching fingers relaxed their grip, and her shoulders slumped in hopelessness. We cannot do battle with the minions of entropy. Perhaps we will not have to. Eric did not believe his own words, but his mouth was twisted with some dark emotion, intense and terrible. Moonglum glanced at Sharila. Sharila is right, he said with conviction. You'll find nothing but bitterness, possibly death, inside those castle walls. Let us instead climb yonder steps and attempt to reach the surface. He pointed to some twisting steps which led towards the yawning rent in the cavern roof. 
Elric shook his head. No. You go if you like. Moonglum grimaced in perplexity. You're a stubborn one, friend Elric. Well, if it's all or nothing, then I'm with you. But personally, I've always preferred compromise. Elric began to walk slowly forward towards the dark entrance of the bleak and towering castle. In a wide, shadowy courtyard, a tall figure, wreathed in scarlet fire, stood awaiting them. Elric marched on, passing the gateway. Moonglum and Shadila nervously followed. Gusty laughter roared from the mouth of the giant, and the scarlet fire fluttered about him. He was naked and unarmed, but the power which flowed from him almost forced the three back. His skin was scaly and of smoky purple colouring. His massive body was alive with rippling muscle as he rested lightly on the balls of his feet. His skull was long, slanting sharply backwards at the forehead, and his eyes were like slivers of blue steel showing no pupil. His whole body shook with mighty, malicious joy. <laughs> Greetings to you, Lord Elric of Melnibonet. I congratulate you for your remarkable tenacity. Who are you? Elric growled, his hand on his sword. My name is Orunlu the Keeper, and this is a stronghold of the Lords of Entropy. The giant smiled cynically. You need not finger your puny blade so nervously, for you should know that I cannot harm you now. I gained power to remain in your realm only by making one vow. Elric's voice betrayed his mounting excitement. You cannot stop us. I do not dare to, since my oblique efforts have failed. But your foolish endeavours perplex me somewhat, I'll admit. The book is of importance to us, but what can it mean to you? I have guarded it for three hundred centuries, and have never been curious enough to seek to discover why my masters place so much importance upon it. Why they bothered to rescue it on its sunward course, and incarcerate it in this boring ball of earth populated by the capering, briefly-lived clowns called men. I seek in it the truth, Elric said guardedly. <laughs> there is no truth but that of eternal struggle, the scarlet-flamed giant said with conviction. What rules above the forces of law and chaos? Elric asked. What controls your destinies as it controls mine? The giant frowned. That question I cannot answer. I do not know. There is only the balance. Then perhaps the book will tell us who holds it. Elric said purposely. Let me pass. Tell me where it lies. The giant moved back, smiling ironically. It lies in a small chamber in the central tower. I have sworn never to venture there, otherwise I might even lead the way. Go if you like. My duty is over. Elric, Moonglum and Sharila stepped towards the entrance of the castle. But before they entered, the giant spoke warningly from behind them. I have been told that the knowledge contained in the book could swing the balance on the side of the forces of law. This disturbs me, but it appears there is another possibility which disturbs me even more. What is that? Elric said. It could create such a tremendous impact on the multiverse that complete entropy would result. 
My masters do not desire that, for it could mean the destruction of all matter in the end. We exist only to fight, not to win, but to preserve the eternal struggle. I care not, Elwick told him. I have little to lose, Orunlu the Keeper. Then go. The giant strode across the courtyard into blackness. Inside the tower, light of a pale quality illuminated winding steps leading upwards. Elric began to climb them in silence, moved by his own doom-filled purpose. Hesitantly, Moonglum and Sharila followed in his path, their faces set in hopeless acceptance. On and upward the steps mounted, twisting tortuously towards their goal, until at last they came to a chamber, full of blinding light, many-coloured and scintillating, which did not penetrate outwards at all, but remained confined to the room which housed it. Blinking, shielding his red eyes with his arm, Elric pressed forward and, through slitted pupils, saw the source of the light lying on a small stone dais in the centre of the room. Equally troubled by the bright light, Sharila and Moonglum followed him into the room and stood in awe at what they saw. It was a huge book, the dead god's book, its covers encrusted with alien gems from which the light sprang. It gleamed, it throbbed with light and brilliant colour. At last, Elric breathed, at last, the truth. He stumbled forward like a man made stupid with drink, his pale hands reaching for the thing he had sought with such savage bitterness. His hands touched the pulsating cover of the book and, trembling, turned it back. Now I shall learn, he said half-gloatingly. With a crash, the cover fell to the floor, sending the bright gems skipping and dancing over the paving stones. Beneath Ulrich's twitching hands lay nothing but a pile of yellowish dust. No! His scream was anguished. Unbelieving. No! Tears flowed down his contorted face as he ran his hands through the fine dust. With a groan which racked his whole being, he fell forward, his face hitting the disintegrated parchment. Time had destroyed the book. Untouched, possibly forgotten for three hundred centuries. Even the wise and powerful gods who had created it had perished and now its knowledge followed them into oblivion. They stood on the slopes of the high mountain, staring down into the green valleys below them. The sun shone, and the sky was clear and blue. Behind them lay the gaping hole which led into the stronghold of the Lords of Entropy. Elric looked with sad eyes across the world, and his head was lowered beneath a weight of weariness and dark despair. He had not spoken since his companions had dragged him, sobbing, from the chamber of the book. Now he raised his pale face and spoke in a voice tinged with self-mockery and sharp with bitterness. A lonely voice, the calling of hungry seabirds circling cold skies above bleak shores. Now, he said, I will live my life without ever knowing why I live it whether it has purpose or not. Perhaps the book could have told me. But would I have believed it even then? I am the eternal sceptic. 
never sure that my actions are my own, never certain that an ultimate entity is not guiding me. I envy those who know. All I can do now is to continue my quest and hope, without hope, that before my span is ended the truth will be presented to me. Sharila took his limp hands in hers, and her eyes were wet. Elric, let me comfort you. The albino sneered bitterly. Would that we'd never met Sharila of the Dancing Mist. For a while you gave me hope. I had thought to be at last at peace with myself. But because of you I am left more hopeless than before. There is no salvation in this world, only malevolent doom. Goodbye. He took his hands away from her grasp and set off down the mountainside. Moonglum darted a glance at Sharila and then at Elric. He took something from his purse and put it in the girl's hand. Good luck, he said, and then he was running after Elric until he caught him up. Still striding, Elric turned at Moonglum's approach, and despite his brooding misery said, What is it, friend Moonglum? Why do you follow me? I've followed you this far, Master Elric, and I see no reason to stop, grinned the little man. Besides, unlike yourself, I'm a materialist. We'll need to eat, you know. Elric frowned, feeling a warmth growing within him. What do you mean, Moonglum? Moonglum chuckled. I take advantage of situations of any kind where I may, he answered. He reached into his purse and displayed something on his outstretched hand, which shone with a dazzling brilliancy. It was one of the jewels from the cover of the book. There are more in my purse, he said, and each one worth a fortune. He took Elric's arm. Come, Elric, what new lands shall we visit so that we may change these baubles into wine and pleasant company? Behind them, standing stock still on the hillside, Sharila stared miserably after them until they were no longer visible. The jewel Moonglum had given her dropped from her fingers and fell, bouncing and bright, until it was lost amongst the heather. Then she turned, and the dark mouth of the cavern yawned before her. Pity poor Elric as much as one can, for his search for a modicum of comfort in a chaotic universe is revealed to be nothing but a false hope. The gods are cruel indeed. Thanks again for your support, Fablers. We couldn't have made it this far without all your positive vibes. Please feel free to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories on the Triple F website, our Facebook page or on Twitter, and consider leaving a donation via our Patreon page. We're looking forward to sharing another 100 episodes with you, and your support will help make that happen. One more thing. Our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, is eligible for the Hugo Award this year. If you think she is worthy, please feel free to pop over to their site via the link in our show notes and nominate her. Remember always that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators shall feel the cold kiss of Stormbringer.
I have been incredibly honoured to be your host for the past hundred episodes, and I'm looking forward to hosting the next hundred with my amazing team editor Gary Dowell and audio engineer Mark Zanfardino behind me. I feel ready to bring you more fantastic fiction in the years to come. And on that slightly soppy note, I shall sign off. I'll see you next week for one o one. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.